What, you think I look like Phil Spencer? Off location, location, location. Yeah, and I, there was the, yeah, I just was watching mm-hmm. it and thinking, God, you, we look together like a pairing, what, K- except Kirstie we're like the non-posh version of them. Kirsty and Phil of the trade union movement. Unions, God, unions, it. unions. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to swear, it's so embarrassing. I just okay. can't believe that was the first thing that came into my head while I was came across that programme. was, oh my God, <laughs> that's us. Well, <laughs> oh, oh look, let, let's begin. with me Simon Sapper and me Becky Wright the director of Unions 21 with a really croaky voice sorry everyone you're very welcome to join us and, and I'm sure uh, like me your heart will go out to Becky who's really <laughs> struggling today I can tell you <laughs> above and beyond the call of duty <laughs> I think some people would be quite pleased that I'm sort of low scale only people who don't share our values I think my family are pretty pretty happy about that but never mind <laughs> So today, so, what are we talking about, so, Simon? So, well, I, well, in the news, oh, in the news, been tons of stuff in the news. I mean, there's, uh, I mean, Balpa, Champagne Corps for Balpa. Well done, Balpa. Yeah, I mean, great recognition agreement with with Ryanair. Yeah. But but I mean, you, when that news broke that O'Leary was going to talk to Balpa, their share price dropped eight percent. I mean, that, and that shows the markets get it wrong, I suppose. Well, um, what do the markets want? The markets probably want to make money, and, well, and having yeah, but, a union in place means that there's going to be more re- redistribution. No, 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 well, no, but the company, the com- I mean, the company was heading for an existential crisis. Yeah, no. That's why we saved their bacon. That, that's why O'Leary said, actually, I've got to do a U-turn and talk to the unions, yeah. and and you know, unions are good for productivity. They're good for the endurance of companies. And, and actually, as the Prime Minister herself said, when looking at the wreckage of Carillion, the unions are part of the solution in terms of making sure there's fairness and, 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 and people who are dependent on Carillion don't get totally sharp. We're part of the solution and we're part of stopping the problem in the first place. Well, Bombardier. <laughs> yeah. Great case, in, great case in point, you know, and the company have been fulsome in recognising the role played by Unite in this case in, in terms of rescuing that company against this atrocious uh, attempt by Boeing to freeze them out of the US market. So, yeah. So that's... Happiness, everyone. Well, except except how do unions... You know, we're not just there to, to clean up the mess. We need to be brought in earlier no, and... But this is why I say about we're, we're part of the... We're part of the solution when things go wrong, but we're also part of the the reason why things don't go wrong. And that's the bit yeah. that I think is often overlooked, is that where companies have really good engagement with their unions and where unions represent the voice of the people in the workplace properly, a lot of these problems just don't happen. And that doesn't mean to say that, that everybody's always singing from the same hymn sheet, but I do think it means that issues are addressed quickly, things are put in place, and a lot of the kind of a lot of the small problems that then turn into big problems don't turn into big problems. Well, and, and, and you say BBC. that. BBC. Well, exactly. That was the thought that was in my mind. B, 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 BBC, uh, yeah, there's been a review of the pay of, of on-screen presenters looking at male rates of pay and female rates of pay. And do you know what, listeners? Shocking news. There's no problem. 
I mean, for heaven's sake, for heaven's sake. But crucially, there, they haven't spoken to the NUJ, who's representing about 120 of the of the women involved in that. They didn't speak to any 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 of the women, any of the women, whether they were part of the union or not. They didn't speak to Bechtu, and not surprisingly. The report's been criticised, and rightly so, as as failing to talk to the people who are most directly affected. And also, you can't you can't dismiss the idea of institutional bias when it comes to pay evaluations. If if unions aren't involved in the creation and the delivery of pay reviews and um, job evaluations, you can't get over the fact that that there will be some bias. How people see jobs and how they see skills and what they value can be inherently biased. And and I say this having been trained to do job evaluations, where a l- part of that was looking at your own internal biases when you are when you're undertaking the procedure. Because we've all got them, haven't we? Because we've all got them. And I've I've sat and argued with an employer and said, the reason you think that job isn't valued the same is because essentially you've got an institutional bias around the worth of that particular job. And, you know, that's the thing that's really sad, I think, for me, is that a lot of these problems could be overcome by just having some decent union recognition and unions being allowed to voice what people at work are saying. And surprise, surprise, you know, you have, you have low employee engagement, you have low employee motivation, you have low productivity. Shock horror, who knew? Yeah, it's not, you, do, you know, there's a lot of talk around, can be a lot of talk about employee engagement being around, oh yes, but look, we have all of these snazzy things for people at work. Fundamentally, people care about how much they're being paid and they care about the conditions at work. And they want to be listened to. And they want to be listened to. And if there is a problem at work, they want to be listened to. If there is a problem with the way in which work is being delivered, they want to be listened to. You know, whether you're on the shop, literally on the shop floor, or whether you're part of management, you will have a view of the best way to do the work that you're doing. And there was a very interesting article by David Coates of the Resolution Foundation in a recent pamphlet published by the Fabians uh, last week about the role of the state in creating the circumstances that are right for that sort of engagement, that, di- that dialogue, that boosting of, of the union voice. And interestingly, and seamlessly, that kind of takes us into the, 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 that, that kind of takes us into the, what we want to spend the most part of this podcast on, which is an interview with Matthew Taylor. Yeah, Matthew gave us a a, a nice amount of time which we're very grateful and we had a really interesting discussion with him so hopefully you'll get something interesting out of that too. I hope so. I I, I warn you, it's it's, as you'd expect from from, from Matthew, this is, you might find this controversial, Uh, you will hopefully find it provocative in a good way in terms of thinking about things but anyway, uh, he can speak for himself and, and kind of here he is. Matthew, thank you very much indeed for joining us on this Unions 21 podcast. It's a pleasure to, to, to have you with us. Thank you. It's a, it's a pleasure to... Well, I was going to say a pleasure to be here, but actually you're in my office. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah. It's true. You also don't know exactly what we're going to ask you. So it's very not, I feel very privileged to be here, but, but uh, the RSA is expanding all the time, so now increasingly I get thrown out of my office and forced to hot desk somewhere else so that people can use this as a meeting room. Ah, <laughs> Oh, right. Okay. Well, I mean, talking of the RSA, obviously, uh, Royal Society for, for the Arts, for those who, who don't know, I mean, the RSA has been increasingly involved in, in the debate about, about good work. 
Um, and I noticed on the website at the moment, the lead story is a, is a work, is an article that's headed, headlined, Are British Workers Thriving, Striving, or Just About Surviving? And in that article, which wasn't written by you, it, 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 it says that no single reform will improve the economic security and employment experiences of British workers. In which case, what should we prioritise? If no single thing will, will crack it, how do we make progress, do you think? Well, that's interesting because uh, it, 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 it takes me to a point I would have thought we'd have got to much later, but it's great to, to start off with that. So um, an, an obsession for me, um, uh, uh, which is, I think, an obsession for the RSA really, is thinking deeply about how change happens. Um, and I think that we all know that it, uh, it is possible to achieve important changes in society one thinks of examples like the minimum wage or advances in our attitudes to uh, lesbian and gay community or devolution to Scotland or the smoking ban as important changes that were helped by legislation and which kind of feel like they're irreversible. Um, but a lot of the time, the things that we try and change in society, we don't succeed. Policymakers don't um, succeed. And I think the area where that's kind of most, you can think of some of the glaring examples of that. We've been trying to address kind of industrial decline, low productivity for a long time without a great deal of success. We've been trying to modernise our public services. For decades, there's been ceaseless reform in our public services, but I think it's hard to argue that those reforms have achieved a great deal. Indeed, if you'd been more damning, you'd say if we hadn't had any of those reforms and just left it to kind of people to make their own way at a more local level, would things be any less good than they are now? So we think hard about what drives change, and that has led us to a very kind of simple proposition, but yet I think an important one, um, which is that the way to think about change is to think uh, like a system. The phrase we use is think like a system, act like an entrepreneur. So on the one hand, understand a problem systemically. Understand all the characteristics of that problem, why an equilibrium holds, but then have an approach to change and also imagine what a whole different system would look like. Imagine what would have to be different for outcomes to be different across, um, across the system. But then the way in which you pursue change is entrepreneurial, adaptive, uh, pragmatic, um, step by step. And it's those com the combination of those two mindsets. Now, that's something that I have learned through being in the public policy world and seeing a lot of failure across my uh, working life. And that's the approach the RSA uses. So, to get to your question, when we say the challenge of economic insecurity, and the RSA has made economic insecurity its big theme for the first half of this year, when we talk about that challenge, what we don't want to argue is that there is one policy, one intervention, or even one domain of intervention which is going to solve the problem of economic insecurity, because it is a complex phenomenon which involves issues of income, but it also involves issues of assets, it involves issues of people's life experiences, it involves issues around whether or not people think the skills they've got are going to be relevant in five or ten years, it involves mm. the way people are treated at work. So just to take one small example, it looks as though just as important as a fear of unemployment is a fear that you're going to lose status and lose control in the job that you currently have, mm. you know, which yes. is not mm. something yes. that, that we have really talked about very much. So our approach to economic insecurity would be to say, well, let's understand this phenomenon in its full complexity, all the different elements of it. And then thinking about solutions, well, let's say wh where, where one might one start? Where is the, 
the greatest opportunity. I, I sometimes say to, public, to policymakers, don't look at a system and say, what do we want to change? Look at the system and say, where is change imminent? Where, where does yeah. it look as though yeah. there's a public desire for change or technology has made something new possible that wasn't possible before or just things have shifted, the stakeholders have shifted their views. So mm. that's what I mean. And this is a long-winded answer because it takes me to the employment review because that was the same approach I used in the employment review, which was to try to understand the challenge of poor work, low-quality work systemically, the different factors that contributed to it. So that's why I didn't just talk about regulation, but I also talked about taxation, and I talked about management, and I talked about representation and voice, and I talked about employability, and talked about the need for kind of institutional reform as well. Uh, on the other hand, my approach to that review, which didn't win me friends in certain parts of the left, was to say, well, let's look at what changes are feasible, particularly given that we've got a Conservative government right now. Let's not describe the kind of, you know, a perfect set of reforms in a different world. Let's say, what is it that we could do? What is it that, that there might be able to be a sufficient consensus for us to be able to start this process mm-hmm. of change? Right. Okay, thank you. I mean, as, as you, you've raised it, and... Uh so, and there's one particular point that I think is worth picking up right, right now, if that's all right by you, Becky, uh, which, which is I about tax. What the point is yet? You don't know, do you? It's about, it's about, ta- it's about tax. I mean, one, one of the one of the criticisms that, that's been made is, is that you were almost fighting about with one hand tied behind your back because you couldn't address tax. And I, I think you were pressed on this about a year ago in an interview with the Independent. Um, and, and, and your response at the time was, look, you know, I'm not bothered about the terms of reference for my review because I see a wind of change coming on tax anyway. I think things are coming our way. Perhaps your, your argument about what can we, you know, how are things shifting? Where can we make a difference? Do you, think, do you think your optimism from about a year ago was justified? Do you think there really is going to be a concerted effort to reform or close the tax loopholes that contribute to poor employment? I'm asking you to speak for the Treasury, which I know you can't. <laughs> well, I think I, 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 I think I would apply the same principle, actually. I would say that what I think we need to do is to uh, have a conversation about what are the principles that should underlie our tax system for it to work in the 21st century. And so in my report, I describe one of those principles, and I argue very clearly that uh, in the long term, a tax system that works in the 21st century would be one uh, in which we did not differentially tax people depending on what type of work they did, depending on what form of yeah. categorization mm. they had. Or to put it differently, actually, we wouldn't pay different amounts of tax on labour depending upon how that labour was employed, because that's actually the way to understand this issue. And the reason why we have these, these differential, that we pay different rates of tax on labour depending on whether that labour is self-employed or employed is to do with the origins of the welfare state, to do with the contributory principle and various other things, most of which is now gone. Yeah. So now self-employed people uh, get access to over 99% of the same public spending as employed people. And there's only a couple of little bits of the welfare state they don't get out of a benefit system they don't get access to. So... Over the long term, thinking systemically, one of the characteristics of a functioning tax system would be that you would not pay different amounts of tax depending on the type of employment. Now, how do we get there? What I argued for was a first step uh, might be and should be that we overcome the situation at the moment where employment regulations and tax regulations don't even align so that you can be self-employed for tax purposes and a worker for employment purposes and vice versa. And I said one goal for policy should be that we get towards a situation where your tax status and your employment status at least are aligned. The final thing I'd say is that, and 
this is not a popular view right now, and who knows, I don't know when you're going to be broadcasting this, so if I refer to the Theresa May government, that's a bit of a risky thing to do, of course. <laughs> well, but I think she's safe for the next 48 hours. <laughs> that's what you're broadcasting in <laughs> 48 hours, that's right, good. And so now <laughs> the curse has been put in place. <laughs> so, assuming that, that we still have a Theresa May government, you know, it isn't a popular thing to say, but I think this government is doing some, you know, it's doing some thinking which should be commended. And I think one of the things about the Chancellor that I would commend is that he is pretty single-mindedly looking at how it is the government can generate more tax revenue. Um, and that has led him, I think, to ask questions about a variety of things which have been put into the tax system, many of them by George Osborne, some by Labour governments which have been kind of giveaways and added complexity um, and in a way undermine the tax base. I'm just reading the newspapers this morning um, that he wants to look at inheritance tax, for example. He wants to simplify that and try to make that uh, fairer. Uh, He tried last year, of course, to take steps towards a more equal uh, tax national insurance regime for the self-employed and employed. It was politically bungled, in my view, but I I think you you would find it hard to find a, a serious tax expert who didn't think he was probably doing the right thing. So I do think this is a government and this is a chancellor that is looking at the tax system and trying to make it one which is more sustainable in the medium term. I mean, I think that the idea about tax and the fact that as a nation we have such an aversion to talking sensibly and dispassionately about tax is, is, is a real challenge for us all. But that's for a different podcast, probably. <laughs> <laughs> one of which um, I'm not going to be there. <laughs> but actually, I wanted to take uh, the, the point that Matthew made about entre- being entrepreneurial in terms of some of our ideas, you know, understanding the system and then actually looking at where are the gaps in the market and having a bit more of that kind of entrepreneurial mindset. It's something that I've sort of thought we kind of miss because we're sort of so used to... Do you think we should tell people that it started raining? Yeah, it's, not that we're being attacked. It's, not, it's not that we're being attacked by bees or something. <laughs> so. Matthew's lovely <laughs> office with his lovely glass is now showering us with... Well, it's not showering us with water, but, you know, we can hear the rain from outside. It's actually really quite pretty. Um, it, there's that kind of... How I viewed it, having gone from the industrial side of the union movement into the what I call the more thinking side. I mean, as an industrial officer, obviously I had to think, but you know, you, you just put ideas out there for everybody. Is that it's hard to come up with with new ideas, but it's really important to to do that, and you can only really do it if you actually understand the issue in its entirety and looking at where are the kind of the gaps. But it seems to me that not many people are kind of doing that it seems that we've we're still in the kind of thinking world and even in the union movement sort of sort of relying on things that we may have thought about 20 years ago or 30 years ago I remember having a a discussion with an officer about a blackberry and how everybody was like oh look at that blackberry we're gonna have a blackberry look at that and thinking, oh, this is this is great, and everybody else thinking this is nuts. I don't I don't want it anymore. And I'm thinking, well, in that time, everything is changed, and yet we're still sort of talking about things in the same way, understanding things. Well, there's no entrepreneurial. Shit. I'd say I think in. Uh, what is there? And I'm just being a pessimist. Uh, I think things have got worse, actually. To be honest, okay. I, I think that um, you know this is kind of slightly going off the topic, I guess. But I, I think we are in the grips of what was described by someone in the LRB of like another review of books recently as the kind of lumpen proletariat. And we know the phrase lumpen proletariat. He talked about the lumpen intelligentsia, mm-hmm. and what he meant by the lumpen intelligentsia, which I think is a reference. Uh, I'm not sure who you coined the phrase, but it's a way of thinking which 
or almost deliberately avoids nuance mm. and subtlety um, and open-mindedness in favour of grand rhetoric, grand sweeps, big solutions. You know, I'm not an enormous fan of big solutions. I, I, you know, I, I think the world is too complex, change is too unpredictable. And when you embark upon a big change... It takes a long time, it's very difficult, and very often you'll find that it generates all sorts of results that you didn't expect. I'm much more in favour of a grand vision of change, but a very incremental, pragmatic, step-by-step approach to that. And so what worries me in this kind of what I... you know, So, so for me, the kind of lumpen intelligentsia, if you excuse that phrase, is represented on the right by the view, which is that once we're out of the European Union, everything will be fine, yeah. which is, I think, the technical term for that is bollocks. Um, but but also on on the left, I'm afraid, which is a kind of you know once we've got a really left wing government uh, that kind of renationalises loads mm-hmm. of stuff and uh, stops austerity, then everything will be fine. And I think that too is uh, you know not not credible. You know the picture is more complex, and yeah. you know what I the the, the ideas I love and re, in, enjoy are the ideas which which help us to understand complexity and subtlety and get us to think deeply. I was reading a piece by Gavin Kelly yesterday about mm. the nature of the economy and the impact of previous rounds of deindustrialization, the possible inter- impact of automation. A brilliantly subtle and thoughtful piece. At the end of that piece, and you know, it could take you ten minutes to read it you would be much less likely to fall into a whole number of traps, intellectual traps, that people fall gaily into every single day of the week. You know, all the robots are going to take away all our jobs, yeah, and yeah. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I, 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 this, when I talk about entrepreneurial thinking, I'm talking about the, the capacity that entrepreneurs have to look at a system and under, see, a, uh, see something that's quirky. So, you know, oh, that's interesting. Nobody's selling that. Or there isn't a shop doing that in that street. Or you see that shop there. It's got those customers. I wonder if you could sell them this as well. And it's that highly adaptive, highly observant mindset. And I don't see... I see so little of it in politics right now. Do you know, I find it really interesting as well when when I've had discussions with uh, lots of different people about, you know, the the fate of the union movement. And, you know, you read articles which say, you know, we're going to die. Um... And and then the, these grand plans for us are kind of given. You're going to get sectoral bargaining, or you're going to have all of these various things. And I kind of come back to it as, yeah, we we have a problem, which is that there are all these new industries that we're not present in, and that workers from our research have shown that people broadly like what unions do and what they offer, but we're not there. And it takes an awful lot of resources, an awful lot of thinking to get us into those industries and so the the grand sort of uh, solution to it is not you know create an app to go against uber it's the kind of what i feel is the really boring bread and butter stuff that enables unions to be more effective and more efficient around data use and kind of how we um map where we're Mm. going and all that kind of stuff and yet whenever i talk to kind of public policy type people about it they go oh well all you need to do is have x and i kind of come and go yeah, well actually you just need this really boring one boring thing the change in the cac requirements would be really helpful yeah, you know, i think that's i think that's that's absolutely right becky and i think that people as you say are not really bothered with pragmatic thinking about day-to-day modernization yeah. because the glorious revolution feels like it's just around the corner now 
I, you know, you sent me a list of questions, which you've obviously, this is obviously a trick you perform because you haven't asked me any of them. So I just, <laughs> no, I, I just yet. say to anyone who's a future, <laughs> anyone uh, wanting to do this podcast in future, you will get sent a list of questions. Just assume this is a ruse. Um, but going back to your question, which obviously I spent hours preparing for, um, you, you, you were going to ask me, I think, what has uh, surprised and disappointed me about the response to the review that I undertook. We were, you've we, just we beaten were, us you just, Yeah, it's just the conversational <laughs> I think style I'll, I'll, that we I'll have. just conduct the interview myself. <laughs> right? um, uh, now, I want to come to what's positive. Yeah. Uh, but let me be very clear about what the single thing that's disappointed me most. Uh, and, uh, and that has been, that for me, one of the most important recommendations in the review, one that I'm fighting for you know, as we speak, as it were, in terms of the fact the government's going to respond in the next few weeks, is the idea of, of significantly reducing the threshold for people to have representation at work, rights mm. to information and consultation, to try to create it as a norm that in organisations beyond a certain size people feel there is someone there who will represent them, that they mm. have right to information about their organisation they work for and they have rights to consultation over things that are going to affect their terms and conditions. It's a tiny step towards a model of industrial partnership. But, but crucially but important in terms of a building block for a better way of absolutely. conducting employee yeah. relations. Now I have also, uh, also I've been absolutely explicit about this. One of the reasons I favour this idea is that it provides a shallow end which can encourage people to move towards the deeper end, and the deeper end is trade union recognition, trade union mm. membership. But I think that if you can get people into the habit of electing people to represent them, and those people have the right to engage with managers, it provides an enormous opportunity for trade unions to come along and say, look, we can help you to read company accounts. Mm. We can give you examples of companies down the road who are doing better things so that you can go and speak to your managers and say, well, why can't we do this. We can yeah. really help you make representation work and now you're in the habit of representation, we're a body that represents workers. Yeah. Now I am still waiting and this is pretty remarkable now because this is, we're talking what, eight months, seven months after yeah. I've yeah. I am still waiting and this is not an exaggeration for a single trade union leader or representative to welcome that proposal. Now that for me is utterly remarkable. Now Let's turn to what's most pleased me about the review. And what's most pleased me about the review has been the way that this idea of good work has kind of become a meme. That's what, you know, I, I hear the idea of good work. I hear the phrase of good work. You know, now there's a danger, which is that you have this big idea and everyone pays lip service to it and it's everything and nothing. And I, I see that danger. But nevertheless, I think a year ago, had I said, you know, the aspiration is good work, people would have said, well, okay, what exactly does that mean? Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of different places I go to, whether it's trade associations or talking to civil servants or ministers or a whole variety of people, I use the phrase good work and they say, yes, yes, so we're really interested in this good work agenda. And so, you know, obviously I want the government to respond substantively to my review, but even if they didn't, it feels to me as though the debate about good work has shifted. I think the debate has shifted, and I think it's shifted from off-radar to on-radar. But if you look at things like Ryanair, where as soon as O'Leary says, I'm going to talk to the unions, the share price falls 8%. If you look at, if you look at Carillion, where Theresa May says in a front-page article in The Guardian the Saturday before last, yes, of course, we must involve the unions in the clearing up of the, of the mess. Mm-hmm. It's, there, is still too, there are still too many negative connotations about union involvement. We're kind of brought in too late, or we're brought in as an afterthought, or, or we're, there, we're there with a the poop scoop. As it were, what what do you think we can do? What do you think unions can do to move the agenda forward? It seems to me that the union movement is associated with two ideas. 
in modern society, one that people uh, support and can be encouraged to use and take forward and one that people are much more ambivalent about. So the idea that people support is the idea of representation at work, the idea that people should have voice, the idea that a workplace should be a partnership between employers and managers and workers and there should be fairness at work. I think Mm. you would find overwhelming support for that idea. Then there's another idea, and the other idea is that trade union general secretaries should be massive power brokers within political parties and within society. And I think people feel much less, much more ambivalent about that second position. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, the point about worker representation is let's get people into the representation habit because in a way what that reminds them of is the is the value of trade unionism as the, as some, as a collective voice for workers which is an idea people subscribe to just to pick up on that one we're finishing a piece of work with the Sheffield Political Economy Research Institute on young professional workers in the hourglass economy right. so it kind of looks at what do young professionals think about their place in the world of work what do they think about work what do they think about trade unions and industrial relations? And sort of what was really interesting to me was that broadly, yeah, everybody likes what trade unions do. When told yeah. this is what a union does, everybody goes, oh, yeah, I quite like that. That sounds that sounds all right. And then, especially for young professionals, the idea of career and their place of work, and I think this can broadly go across the piece, the dignity of work that comes mm-hmm. with unions is really important to them and then the voice in the workplace and the voice in industry being more paramount than the voice anywhere else and I was just thinking a bit about the 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 place that unions have to have vision for the industries that they represent and how they kind of put forward that and engage people on that so there's just that that culture of representation of which Mm -hmm. you sort of talk about but there's also that culture of a vision for the industries that that, the unions represent and I think there's you know we talk about the fall of trade unions but there's also the fall in employers organizations as well that's a very important point one of the things I didn't realize when I wrote the review and had I realised it, I would have actually put a couple of recommendations in the review about it, is that we've got the lowest level of membership of trade, trade associations. Yeah. Uh, in Germany, you know, you're required to join your Chamber of Commerce, and because yeah. of sectoral bargaining, you join your sector association. Um, we've uh, we've got a highly atomistic business structure. Yeah, yeah. So even if you talked about giving unions sectoral... Uh, you know mechanisms you don't have any kind of employer organizations that has the legitimacy to carry some of those out and they not, need to be the resurgence not, in that as well not in most areas I mean, in some yeah. se- in some sectors in, yeah, yeah. in some sectors you do and in some sectors there's good work i mean i've done quite a lot of work with the british retail consortium for example or spoken mm. to them quite a bit and they've done some really interesting work about the future of yeah, work yeah. in the retail sector one of the things that I recommended in my review is I do talk about strengthening the role of the Low Pay Commission. Mm. Now, part of the reason for that is because the Low Pay Commission is the only bit of corporatism we've got. Yeah. It's the only place where you have employers' representatives and trade union representatives and, and independent experts, and it's a very well-respected body that's done a very good job. Now, it actually doesn't have much, much to do right now because the living wage has been set for the next couple of years, few years. So I've argued, and I, again, this is something that I'm pushing hard for, that the Low Pay Commission be given a much stronger role in being proactive in thinking about how to improve quality of work in those industries where there's going to be a high proportion, an unprecedentedly high proportion of people on the living wage. Mm. So we're going to be talking about sectors and places where you've got 15 20% of people on the living wage. Now, if we don't think hard about how to improve quality of work and progression in those sectors, the danger is those workers will just be parked. It'll just yeah. become the norm to be sat on that living wage um, and that you're kind of reliant upon 
you know, the living wage rather than your engagement with your your employers and your manager yeah. for, your, for your progression. Yeah. So uh, that little bit of, you know, that interest, I, and I'm so old, I remember when there were a whole variety of these kind of corporatist structures. My first ever job was in one of them, but we've got a little bit left, and that's the low pay commission. I think enhancing the low pay commission's role could be one of the side effects of that is to sit to, to demonstrate the trade unions can be involved in those kinds of industry those kind of bodies mm. and can play an important role in, in shaping good policy making. Mm. I get the feeling that, that there's, a, there's a degree of, you view this almost as chicken and egg in the, in the sense that one could say government has to take the lead and take the initiative to embed this, this kind of uh, consultative regime or to facilitate the Lopez Commission acting in a more adventurous way, you might say, than, than, it, than it does previously. On the, on the other hand, why should government act when unions don't display the appetite or, 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 or the vision? I wonder how how we break that circle. My very first job was in a tripartite uh, institution, National Economic Development Office, um, but then I went to university. My first job after university was with the trade union, and I did the industrial relations MA at Warwick. And I think very hard about trade unionism, and um, it, it's something that causes me genuine kind of intellectual kind of grief really because I'm a committed to the trade union movement the role that it can play but I think that a combination of mistakes made within the movement and mistakes made by government in relation to the movement have got us to the position where we're in which is very low levels of union membership and uh, exactly as you say Becky a public which bizarrely supports the principles that underlie trade unionism but doesn't support capital T capital U trade unions mm. And, mm. And, and doesn't want to join them so I think you know we, we have to try to create a positive cycle. We've seen a negative cycle. Let's try and create a positive. Well, the positive cycle is to say, if we can, for example, looking at my review, if we can make representation at work the norm and people see that it works, then that provides an opportunity for trade unions to come along and say, we can help you do that. If the Low Pay Commission has an expanded role with trade unions on the Low Pay Commission, we can start to see the way that trade unions can play an important role in a body which is dedicated, not as it were to the pursuit of self-interested trade union demands, but it's pursuit of the public good, we might then start to grow trust. Yeah. Uh, Modernising voices in the trade union movement, those voices who say, well, let's try and do what we can now, make the best of things now, let's not just wait for the glorious revolution, might be heard a bit more loudly. Now, do I feel confident about that at the moment? Not particularly, but it's just a fight that I'll, you know, I, I, I have been in my little way, in various ways, fighting for modern trade unionism for, you know, 30 years, and I'll carry on doing it. It's funny, because I've been brought up to think, well, you're in this mess, and you, you, only you can get yourself out of it. And uh, the hallmark of the paper that we're going to release at our conference uh, this year on the future of trade unionism starts with the idea of there's only one movement that's going to get us out of the mess that we're in, and that's the trade union movement, and how we've got to take responsibility for some of the decisions that we've made and how we've got there, but also that you can't rely on a particular policy from any particular kind of government. You've got to, we've got to think internally about how we get from point A to point B, which I find quite, quite, it's quite an interesting 
proposition. Well, it's interesting. It's, it's actually um, existentially important. <laughs> yeah, I've never known to be existential. So this is quite, I mean, David Arnold, who's writing the paper for us, is, is doing a stellar job on it. And it's really going to be really, really interesting. And I think the thing I quite enjoy is being challenging, not for its own sake, but just because I think sometimes you've got to say the things that are difficult as a friend you know it's like you go with your fr- me being one of my euphemisms when you go for a friend and they're trying on dresses and they try on a dress that doesn't suit them I think being a nice friend is saying to them that doesn't look great on you but they take it from you because you're their friend I'm really good at these yeah well no and I think this is the thing that we're trying to do now it's interesting you should say that Becky because that's kind of one of the definition of a leader is somebody who recognises that there's a problem and rather than kind of hiding it away or covering it up walks towards it and recognises it and recognises the need to challenge your own side so I think absolutely you're right Becky that that what leaders of organisations have to do it's what I always try to do is to you know, is to look in the mirror and say, what is wrong with my organisation? What's wrong with my leadership? What do I need to change? Mm-hmm. Start reform at home. The easier thing always is to say, oh, of course, everything's fine here. It's those bastards over there. Yeah. And I think, um, unfortunately, you know, there is a very strong narrative now for the union movement to say the problem is not us, the problem is those bastards over there. And I completely get it, and it's a perfectly credible position. But if you're not self-critical and if you're not changing yourself, if, if the trade union movement is not saying... Part of the reason it's got historically low levels of penetration is to do with the offer it is making, yeah. and merely to say that's down to kind of nasty Tories and their laws. Then you know you're you're missing a big learning opportunity. I think, I think so. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'll speak up for trade union general secretaries and trade unions themselves. We still represent over six million people, and I don't know a single trade union leader who doesn't look in the mirror and think things you know things could be better. I mean, it's part of the kind of part of the human condition that things can always always be improved. But I would agree with you absolutely that with union density levels being the, the way they are and coverage of collective bargaining being the way they are and whole swathes of the economy being deserts as far as trade union invo- involvement is concerned, there's clearly, as you say, a huge, huge op- opportunity. So there. thinking about that, one of the things that, we were, that we've been asking people is who they think the next generation is in terms of thinking about trade unions or thinking about um, the public policy around the world of work or in whatever field it, field it was. And we're quite interested to know, Matthew, who do you think are the leading lights in terms of thinking around unions, the world of work, that kind of stuff? So for me, it's not about individuals, really. It's about categories of people. And I, I would encourage us to, to, to think, what can we do to, to get the next generation of managers, who will, a lot more of whom will be women, for example, mm. to have a more enlightened and progressive view of what management involves? Interesting. And where next for the RSA? What the RSA is kind of in the process of doing is is moving away from a kind of traditional think tank model where we ask people to give us money and we produce thoughts for them and then put them out into the world and much more into a kind of model which we would call partners in change. And what that means is to work with organisations who are trying to achieve a change that we share um, and to work over time with them to explore how it is you might thinking more systemically acting more entrepreneurially be able to achieve that change and for me that's that's a much richer way of working you know so yeah there's a bit of me because I'm in kind of a fiercely competitive person and rather shallow as well 
uh, that likes newspaper headlines and you know being noticed and all of that. So I hope the RSA becomes more and more associated with having a a kind of powerful model of change. If you like, it's almost like a kind of benign McKinsey. I'm not saying McKinsey is evil, but we we want to see ourselves as an organisation which is broadly kind of progressive in its outlook, um, but has the kind of skill set to really help organisations be more successful at achieving change. Interesting. Very interesting and a great place to, to end the discussion for now. Matthew Taylor, thank you very much indeed for joining it's us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Matthew. When do I get to choose my ten de- favourite discs? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, listeners, um, that was quite a whistle-stop tour, I think, think you'd agree. I mean, Becky and I are kind of sitting here and, and thinking, well, what, what are our takeaways from that? I mean, there's lots, there's kind of yeah. lots to choose from in a way, but, but I think, Becky, you were struck most by the, the, the notion of the model of change. Yeah, I, I think that the approach the RSA is having in terms of addressing the, the idea that you understand everything in its entirety and then you do some form of uh, entrepreneurial kind of small tweak change niche try to find the thing that isn't being delivered anywhere else I think that's a really interesting approach and it's something that I have naturally gravitated towards as things have gone on and the reason for that is a lot of the times I hear you know this is the problem we've got and actually it's only half the problem and the person hasn't taken enough time to really get to grips with you know the reasons why we are where we are so I like that approach I like that idea of really putting front and centre the idea of look let's get to grips with the issue and then let's be you know risk takers let's give that a go let's let's see how it works I mean, that, yeah, I tell you, I agree with you, uh, and uh, I, I thought that the idea about how to make change happen, which was a key thing for our, mo- our, our movement, was, was there was a really interesting take on that from, from Matthew. But the problem, isn't it, about, about the sort of holistic view, waiting for the complete picture, is sometimes people say, haven't got the complete picture, can't do anything. And, no, then, yeah. and, and then it's a question of how we, how we get movement and progress and, and, and maintain momentum, gather momentum. It's, it can easily be seen as a reason to not do stuff. But I actually think that it's not that difficult to get the full picture. People make it look harder than what it is. that's as far as I get with whether, it. All, whether but. it really is difficult to get the full picture or people just make it look difficult, the, the net result is the same. People We don't do anything. People go off at half cock, as it were, and we don't do anything and all the rest of it. So, so, so what, what do we do? I mean, my view would be... You can always find examples of good practice if you know where to find where to find them. Yeah, and you 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 got an absolute duty to look, to support, to talk about, to disseminate, to copy, to build. Yeah, I, no, I completely agree with that. And uh, by the time we have uh, this podcast goes out, we will have released our tickets to uh, the conference out for wider distribution. And uh, one of the things that we will be discussing at the conference is around the future workforce and unions, because it's going to come out of a paper that we're doing on young professional workers and the hourglass economy. And the thing that strikes me when we we got all of the information from Sperry, it's a a great document. Uh, It's going to be released on the uh, 13th of February. So rush, put, put the date in your diary and go rush to read it when it goes live. But just as a bit of an upshot is that I read that paper and I thought, well, let's ask the union movement if we're already doing those sorts of things already. 
so that we can learn from what's going on and then we can build build on it. I I don't prescribe to the view that we're not doing anything. We're doing lots of different stuff. It's just people don't know that other people are doing it. And also we don't have a mechanism to evaluate what's working and why, which I think is really important, really important for Unions 21 going forward is to kind of help unions to have that kind of place and to really think about stuff. That is absolutely at the heart of, of, of what we do, listeners. We provide that space for that, that cross-fertilisation, that dissemination, that sharing of best practice to happen and as well as the report that uh, Becky referred to we will be publishing a special podcast to coincide with Unions Heart Week uh, in, in a couple of weeks and then after that uh, following on behind that we've got a really good podcast coming up featuring Claire Sullivan from the Chartered Society of Physiotherapists about the interface between physiotherapy and trade unionism uh, so there's lots to look forward to from the Unions 21 stable, that's for sure. And the Unions 21 conference, just to remind people of the date, Becky, is... 13th of April, uh, we're going to be talking about the future of unions. So if you're interested in the future of unions, thinking about what it could look like, uh, who are going to be the future trade union members of tomorrow, then please go along to the website www.unions21.org.uk forward slash events and get your ticket early bird rates are now available uh what i would say is in terms of the content we're looking at the future of unions and what they can look like and what are unions doing now already Uh, we're going to look at the future of the workforce and unions we're going to be looking at the future of trade union education and also the future of collective voice and industrial strategy. Wow. So, so it's a it's a must it's a must attend must get to event. Yeah. I I would say, if you would like to join the conversation, we would love to have your input and love to have your views. You can email us at, at info at unions21.org.uk. We really do welcome your contribution and feedback. And in, and a particular shout out to James Farrer who wrote in after our last podcast, to, uh, to say how much he enjoyed what we were doing. Thanks for that, James. But also to make the point that in our item about the Uber case, uh, we didn't uh, acknowledge the role played by James as one of the people who, who put in the Employment Tribunal uh, and the uh, IWGB union who were involved in that case as well. So we're happy to acknowledge that here now. But as I say, we welcome your views and discussions. It's good to know that you like what we're doing. And if you don't like what we're doing as well, we need to hear that from you too. Yeah, but mainly if you like it. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, until next time, this is me, Simon Sapper. And me, Becky Wright. Saying thanks for listening and goodbye. Bye. The Unions 21 podcast was presented by Becky Wright and Simon Sapper. It was a Makes You Think production.